This episode of New Politics was released on the 12th of August, 2023, and produced on the land of the Wongal and Wajuk people. Welcome to New Politics. In this episode, the Liberal Party drags down the voice to Parliament so it can score a political point against Anthony Albanese, the secret life of Walter Sofronoff, the Qantas Chairman's VIP lounge, and the food porn of Kitchen Cabinet. I'm Eddie Djokovic, editor of New Politics. I'm David Lewis, executive producer of ABC TV's Kitchen Cabinet. And if you'd like to support New Politics, you can support us through a Patreon subscription and you can also subscribe on Substack. But whether it's a subscription or whether you just want to listen in, read our material online or buy a T-shirt or buy a book, it's all available at newpolitics.com.au and all of this is a good way to support independent journalism. The voice to Parliament has been dominating Parliament all week with the opposition leader Peter Dutton doing his best to sow the seeds of division over this issue. And this follows on from all the goodwill that was shown at the Gama Festival at the weekend in Arnhem Land. Peter Dutton was invited to the festival and refused to go. Here's the Prime Minister suggesting that Peter Dutton should make the trip to Gama. I say to the leader of the opposition, he needs to spend less time on his dirt unit and more time in the red dirt in the red dirt of the top end. And I invite him to visit Gama on the weekend. This is a major Indigenous cultural event in remote Australia. It will be on this weekend. I encourage the Leader of the Opposition to travel with me to that, to sit down and engage constructively. And here's Peter Dutton's response, not to Parliament, not to the people in Arnhem Land, not to the electorate, but speaking to Ray Hadley at 2GB. And Gama is a celebration um, and a good thing, but it'll be largely occupied by uh, the CEOs and chief executives and others from uh, public listed companies and all of those who have been out there funding the Yes campaign. And and it will be um, a love-in for the Yes advocates and proponents, and that's fine, but I'm not going up there to pretend that I'm somebody that I'm not. Uh, I'm not supporting the voice. So it's obvious what Peter Dutton is doing here is to shore up his own leadership. It's about the ambitions of the Liberal Party at the next federal election, and all of this is the easy way for Peter Dutton. If he had the courage in his convictions, if he was so sure about his beliefs, he'd go and say this to the people at the Gamo Festival. He'd go to every Indigenous community in Australia and explain himself. But this is all ratcheting up fear and loathing and using favourable media outlets to ramp up this fear. Now, if Peter Dunn ever does become Prime Minister... Well, you have to appeal to more people than your own like-minded crowd. You can't hide behind Ray Hadley forever or any other shock jock or call people dirty lefties, which is what he did when he was a minister. His approach might end up destroying the voice of parliament referendum, but it's not going to be much of a victory. The electorate wants to see more from a potential prime minister than someone whose entire career seems to be based on negativity, race baiting and punching down on the already marginalised people in the community. One of the things I think is that he'd have got all the detail he'd need at Gama. Uh, and one of the things he's been campaigning is that there's not enough detail, there's not enough detail, there's not enough detail. 
I think he's made a bit of an error in that a lot of the people who are not sure who are being swayed by, let's be frank, the racist media saying that this is a bad thing and who are maybe not seeing the racism or are worried that some of the lies being told about it, that they're going to take all our land and that your suburban house will be given back to the Indigenous community and that there'll be... These are some of the more outrageous ones. It's the insidious ones that I worry about. Stuff like it's just going to be elite Indigenous people carving it up for themselves. We do know that it's an extremely positive thing to give a very disenfranchised people a say to the Australian Parliament rather than, as it's been over the last 10 or 12 years, probably longer actually, been over the last several decades, highly privileged people a say in which a lot of that say has been used to oppress uh, the Australian Indigenous people. So it's the insidious lies, the ones that prima facie may have some argument to them, but without a lot of digging into it, are not true that the yes vote has to campaign on. Dutton, of course, doesn't know how to appeal to people outside his bubble of right-wing voters, and in Australian terms at least, far-right-wing voters. This is a problem, of course. John Howard could have appealed to the centre Malcolm Turnbull could appeal to the centre, but he couldn't have appealed to the far right. Tony Abbott, for a bit, appealed to the centre till it turned out that he was completely unfit for the job. And I suppose it's fair to say Scott Morrison seemed to appeal to the centre because he presented himself as a moderate, although that didn't last long either. Peter Dutton, I suppose there's an honesty about this, has never tried to appeal to the centre, let alone the left. But Australia is much more a centrist country than a lot of Liberal Party leadership seems to think at the moment. On all of this is the standard conservative approach to politics. Create the chaos, create the division, create all the hatred and then stand by and accuse everyone else of causing the chaos and the division. It's a little bit like the dog that returns to its own vomit and then starts barking at everyone. But every single question from the opposition in question time this week was about the voice of parliament. Every question about the economy or any other issue weaved in a question about a treaty or the Makarata or the voice of parliament. And of course, the government responded to these questions. And then this was amplified by Sky News and Seven West Media that the government is spending too much time talking about the voice of parliament and not enough on the cost of living issues. And to me, it's just a little bit curious that the coalition feels that the mention of the word treaty is enough to send fear into the heart of every member of the Australian community. And remembering that governments do sign all sorts of treaties, AUKUS is a treaty, and I know that there's a lot of contention about that. David, you and I have spoken quite a lot in opposition to that, but the government just went ahead and did it. They just did it anyway, and there's free trade treaties, there's so many treaties that so many people in Australia couldn't care less about or don't even know about, but a treaty with a group of its own people that had land stolen from them by the imperialists and by British Empire in 1788, well, that ends up sending conservatives into a frenzy. And it's this fear of losing something, I think. It's like, well, we stole the land back in 1788 and half of the indigenous population wouldn't have known about this at the time, but we've stolen it and we don't want anyone to know that it has been stolen and, by the way, we're not giving it back. And it's the same fear and loathing that John Howard exploited in 1997 during the WIC legislation where he held up a map on national television and said that almost all of Australia and their backyards was going to be taken back by Indigenous people. 
That never happened. That was a big lie then. It's a big lie now. But it's still an issue that can be so easily exploited in Australian politics today. It's the politics of fear. And, of course, it's easier to run a politics of fear than a politics of hope. And it's easier to take down than to build. So for people not inclined to work, which many of the modern Liberal Party are people not inclined to work, it's a much easier way to to run things. Not all of the Liberal Party, I should say. I know that there are some people who work very hard and try and do positive things, even if we don't agree with them. But Peter Dutton doesn't strike me as someone who likes to work, let alone work for the greater good. Suzanne Lay doesn't strike me as someone who likes to work for the greater good, let alone do very much work, etc., etc. I won't go through all of them. And it's a terrible shame that the Liberal Party has decided to politicise it in that kind of way. There's no really strong argument for no that doesn't in some way come back to racism or classism, or to my view at least is unrealistic in the aims that going further would achieve. I do believe that as sad as it is, things are done in Australia better by steps. This has been problematic. Look at our treatment of the environment. It's going to be potentially disastrous if we stop trying little steps and trying to appease everybody. But uh, when it comes to reconciliation, it's got to be, unfortunately, smaller steps. And I think the voice to parliament is a good way to get a treaty going, is a good way to improve economic and additional opportunities for the Indigenous population. So it's a shame that the Liberal Party has decided to go against its traditional principles and oppose it and use the politics of fear, of resentment, envy and downward envy to do this. They're on the wrong side of history and the hope is that Australia itself doesn't end up on the wrong side of history. And it was also revealed in the Australian Financial Review that the Coalition just wanted to defeat the voice to Parliament so it could defeat Anthony Albanese. Here's Senator Penny Wong speaking in the Senate. Mr Dutton and Senator Cash are really continuing the legacy of Scott Morrison, always putting the political interest ahead of the national interest. Uh, and if you want any proof of their intentions other than observing this chamber, listen to what comes out of their own mouth. Mr Curry of the Financial Review reported that one coalition MP told him that we can't win the election unless we defeat the voice solidly, i.e. we need to defeat it to get to the election starting line. Now, if you ever wanted an example of why Scott Morrison's leftovers are still continuing his legacy, it's that message to Phil Corey. Well, you know what's pathetic? That's pathetic. To say we can't win the election unless we defeat the voice solidly. You know what that shows? You look, learn nothing. You learn nothing from what Australians want for the last election. You continue the Morrison-Dutton legacy. Uh, of always looking uh, to your own interest, never the national interest. That's what the coalition strategy is all about. They want to defeat the voice to parliament, which is an issue that is in the public interest, and especially for First Nations people of Australia. They just want to defeat it so that they can defeat Albanese politically. So it's political nihilism at its worst. It's political opportunism at its worst. And it's also all about Peter Dutton's ambitions to be Prime Minister. But I just don't think he's actually got the skills to get there and achieve that. And if he ever does get there through some kind of political accident and misfortune, well, to me, it's going to be Tony Abbott 2.0. Dutton's been in Parliament for 22 years. And whether he's been in government or opposition, it's all the same negativity. It's the same division that he seeks, whether he's a government minister or whether he's a leader of the opposition. 
It's all the negativity, the race baiting, the racism. And it's what the Howard years were all about. Tony Abbott, Scott Morrison, and now Peter Dutton. It's just this relentless negativity that destroys the body politic. And whether they're in government or in opposition, it's all about themselves and never in the public interest. And there was also that news about Peter Dutton when he was Home Affairs Minister. And he's now complaining about not enough being done to stop the violence in Alice Springs. But when he was Minister... He overlooked desperately needed community safety programs in Indigenous communities. Higher ranked community projects in Indigenous communities were ignored, while projects that were not even recommended by the Department of Home Affairs, and these were in marginal Liberal held seats, they did get the funding. And this gets back to what we talked about before. Peter Dutton is a person who creates the chaos, whether it's now or whether he's in government. And then when it doesn't work out, he blames everyone else. And I think for a political leader of any political stripes, this might end up working in the short term, but I think in the long term it is unsustainable. Yeah, I think he's the filler leader till somebody approaches. I've said this before, the Liberal Party is in dire need of radical reform. It needs to get back to policies that centrist Australia agrees with, not trying to push the notion that this form of fascism light that may have worked in the Howard years. And of course, this takes us back to having an inadequate mainstream media who don't hold them to account in any way near appropriate. Tony Abbott should never have become Prime Minister. Peter Dutton should never become Prime Minister. And I think the voters have learnt from the Abbott experiment that Peter Dutton will not become Prime Minister. But the press keep pushing him and the press keep pushing the Liberal Party. And we hear from the shadow minister before we've had a chance to hear what the actual policy is from the minister. Things are going to change and in a way that some people aren't going to like, but that's going to happen. I think a lot of this is, I think what we're going to discuss now is a little bit in hindsight, but I think the Labor government could have avoided A lot of these problems that we're seeing at the moment with the voice to parliament, if they held the referendum as soon as possible after the 2022 federal election. And holding a referendum is just like preparing any other legislation. It gets passed in the lower house and then the Senate, and then it's got to be held between two and six months after the legislation has been passed. And, you know, my feeling is, well, don't give your opponents time to think about it. Get it rushed through as soon as possible while your opponents are so disorganised. And people might think, that, hang on, that's a little bit of skullduggery going on there. But if you want to achieve your agenda, this is what you do. The coalition do it all the time. We're in, they're in government. So why can't a Labor government do this? And there was also so much goodwill towards the new Labor government at the time. There were high levels of support for the voice of parliament at the time. Now, I'm not saying that there wouldn't have been any resistance to the Voice to Parliament proposal if it all occurred in 2022, but there just wouldn't have been enough time for the racist right-wing groups and the media to organise and amplify their campaigns of misinformation. And, And I think there's probably been too much political emphasis on the Voice to Parliament. And that's not to say that I don't think it's worthwhile. I think it is. And of course it is. But this is essentially a very modest change to the Constitution. And not many people know about the Constitution. Not many people know that it actually exists or what its purpose is. And personally, I think it's one of the poorest constitutions in the world, a constitution that is so hard to amend 
is one that's not worth having really and essentially we're stuck with the constitution that was created for the times in 1900 and doesn't work in 2023 but the voice of parliament has been magnified by the conservatives into this wholesale change to the way the government operates in australia we're still hearing all this garbage about a third chamber in parliament as well and whether the voice of parliament referendum is passed or not, and there's still some way to go on this, I just feel that at the moment, Anthony Albanese has lost the politics on this, and that's what the coalition was banking on. And they've seen a political opening for themselves that has got nothing to do with the voice of parliament, and they're not acting in the public interest. And they're more like the US Tea Party or a party of Donald Trump. It's populist nonsense that I think will hurt them in the long term. It'll definitely hurt them in the long term. And, and Labor needs to start too. And I know I'm not there and hello to all our Labor members listening. This is advice given from a friendly position out of love. Labor needs to start kicking liberal heads. Stop the politeness. They're not listening to politeness. They're not interested in politeness. They're throwing the dead cat on the table. They're telling lies and the press is letting them get away with it. Start kicking heads. Treat the Liberal Party worse than you treat the factions in the Labor Party. That's what it's got to get down to. Paul Keating said, by the time we'd finished with Labor left, the Liberals had no chance. That was absolutely true. Both factions, it's time to unite against the common enemy, the Judean People's Front. But it's true. Stop being polite. Stop being nice. If they ask a stupid question, tell them it's a stupid question and why should you answer it? If the press come back with that, tell them that they're stupid for reporting this stuff. That's the only thing that can cut through at the moment. That's how you win the politics. Be tough. Be brutal. Be thugs if you have to. I know that you know the toughest person in parliament is Penny Wong. User. This polite stuff isn't going to work. And I don't want to be part of a population that ends up voting on the wrong side of history because Rupert Murdoch may have been slightly inconvenienced because he had to actually act like a normal company in Australia. I want to see real and substantive change for the better, not just for me, but for future generations. I'm just picking up on that point and looking at some of the tactics in question time, and this is where we started with all of this Mm. today, but Anthony Albanese is just spending so much time giving long answers to every stupid question asked by Peter Dutton and Susan Lay, and he should be just giving short one-word answers. And Susan Lay asked the question whether the Uluru Statement is 26 pages long, and Anthony Albanese then gave the question serious credence by giving this very, very long answer. Continuing to ask questions about uh, this conspiracy that's been out there for a long period of time, Mr Speaker. Uh, Megan Davis said this, there's been a lot of news this week that the Uluru Statement is 26 pages long, but it's one page. That's the statement. That is what we issued to the Australian people. Indeed, this conspiracy has been around a while. Has been around a while. ABC News fact check. I wonder who they got this off. Pauline Hanson claims list of Indigenous demands found via FOI shows dangers of a voice to Parliament. What's actually in the documents? I table the RMIT ABC fact check from 21st of April 2023 that found that it was a nonsense. It's been available online ever since 2017, but we've covered it up. Did Scott Morrison too just pretend that the Uluru Statement was one page long 
and conspire to hide the full Uluru Statement. <laughs> Mr Speaker, this is absolute conspiracy and nonsense that shows that they've become a fringe political party, Mr Speaker. They're making one nation look like a mainstream political Order. party with this nonsense. Mark Liebler made it clear last night. Again, is I was at Uluru for the National Convention and witnessed the adoption of the statement. It was one page. And this is the coalition's tactic to waste time and then make the claim that Albanese is spending too much time on the voice of parliament, which then ends up being amplified by the mainstream media. And David, as you said before, these are stupid questions. Give them a one word answer and then move on. And don't be fair to the coalition in opposition that has no intention of being fair or reasonable. And as the Australian Financial Review reported, the Liberal Party want to defeat the voice to parliament so that they can score a political defeat on Anthony Albanese. So he should be kicking the coalition into the gutter in retaliation. And it seems to me that Anthony Albanese has also overestimated a lot of issues here. He believed that Peter Dutton would act in good faith. He believed in the good faith of the mainstream media. And the Liberal Party, these are the people that gave us Tampa. These are the guys that gave us African gangs, beating up on asylum seekers, immigration detention centres. These people kick into the poor and disadvantage as a sport. And as I said, all of this is in hindsight. I thought that Anthony Albanese, with his 27 years of political experience, would have realised that you can never trust the Liberal Party on anything. And perhaps we should have predicted all of this on the day that David Littleproud from the Nationals and Peter Dutton decided that they would not support the voice to Parliament. And from here on, well, what should a Prime Minister do? Should he force his way through and that's a high risk, of course, or should he try and achieve these goals in other ways? And we also have to bear in mind that the 36 referenda questions that have been defeated out of the 44 that have been proposed since Federation in 1901, all of those failed questions didn't have bipartisan support. So it seems to be the golden rule in Australian politics, bipartisan support that gets passed, no bipartisan support, well, that doesn't get passed. And I just find this whole process incredibly depressing. And we were hoping that this would be the one that bucks the trend. But when you've got so many awful and terrible people who are trying to do their best to derail the process as much as possible with ulterior and racist motivations and their supporters in the mainstream media, it's just so hard to buck that trend and do things differently. There's a lot of companies still in favour, a lot of big companies, including mining companies, let's be fair. There's a lot of cultural workers and television personalities and movie actors. And so I'm a little bit more optimistic that there's enough support around that people will ultimately vote yes. The other thing too that I don't think it's occurred to Peter Dutton is that losing a referendum is rarely disastrous for a government. The position of the government won't change. He will still remain an extremely unpopular leader of the opposition. His stakes won't rise much, if at all. So this is not only a high-risk uh, manoeuvre, it's a very low-return manoeuvre. What I'd say to the Liberal Party is you should have supported it, knowing that it was the right thing, knowing that those moderates who you've lost would be happy to support a Liberal Party looking to build for the future. And then you'd start the argument on what shape should it take, how many people should it have. 
all of that stuff to try and stop it at the front so you can put it in legislation so it can be taken down by you doesn't come across as something that a progressive future party I know that our Liberal listeners, hello to all of you too, I say this out of friendship and love. I know that all our Liberal listeners will say, but we are worried with this, with that. I would have supported it and then started the argument after. You don't want to be the party that's known as the one that's stuck in the past, and that's what's happening. The next election's gone for you. Both parties really should be looking at longer-term survival because I'm not sure how much longer either major party has left. Oh, but also the other point is that for me, the Liberal Party at the moment is a continuation of the Howard government or the Howard version of the Liberal Party from 1996 onwards. And then, sure, the faces are different, but essentially it's the same party from 1996. And what's that? Nearly 30 years ago. So that probably says it all. It's time to change, people. It's change or die, really. You're listening to New Politics. You can subscribe to us on Apple or Google Podcasts. Listen through Spotify, YouTube, SoundCloud and Amazon Music. Or you can find us at newpolitics.com.au and you can now support New Politics through Substack and Patreon. The Sofronoff report has been released and that's the report from the Board of Inquiry from the criminal justice system, specifically into the trial of Bruce Lerman over an alleged rape in 2019. The Bruce Lerman trial was aborted in 2022 due to jury misconduct and the KC Walter Sofronoff, he headed the inquiry to investigate what went wrong in that trial. And it seems like it's a case where everything has gone wrong in this trial. The involvement of Liberal Party ministers, the handling of the case by Australian Federal Police, the way that they treated the complainant in this case, Brittany Higgins, the actions of the ACT Department of Public Prosecutions in handling the case. And in the opinion of several prominent legal commentators, the report is a hit job on the public prosecutor, Shane Drumgold, who has since resigned. And then we had the bizarre situation where the head of the inquiry decided to brief journalists all the way through the inquiry and then gave his final report to a senior news corporation journalist before it was provided to the ACT government. And for me, this is one of the strangest cases ever in Australian political history. And it seems that there's a lot of cover-up going on here but it's just hard to know why it's happening in this particular way. And we can always say that it's a series of stuff-ups rather than a conspiracy, but there's so many events and issues in this entire saga that just do not add up. It's a case that is going to vex historians for years unless there are some clear answers given. The defendant, who I I won't name because we all know his name and I don't want to derail anything, has the presumption of innocence under the law. This is right. But the presumption of innocence to me doesn't give you the ability to cover up, to have 
things cleaned, to have tapes wiped, to have the wrong tapes delivered to the media, to sue media for defamation in a court case. Certainly a 23-year-old who, again, the evidence is, is that he wasn't a terribly capable in that job. We've had disciplinary letters released for example, suggesting that the minister at the time was not happy with his performance. When all this was looked into, we see another two careers destroyed. Now, I'm not going into the rightness or wrongness of whether they should have been or not, except it looks like they should have been. Soronoff, it seems, leaked his report to Janet Albrechtson of The Australian, who were able to give an exclusive. And he doesn't seem to have acted the way that we would hope a high-ranking KC would act. In 120 years of the Australian Parliament, I've never seen much like this. The one that springs to mind is the uh, Anandamaga case with the bombing of the Hilton Hotel where uh, members of the Anandamaga cult were blamed for it when there was clearly something else going on. All of it was understandable, if not excusable, as to why you might want to cover things up. This case is incomprehensible as to why the cover-up. Watching it unfold is like watching a really poorly written one of those cheap soap operas. Well, it's hard to come across a legal or political event that has been laced with so much incompetence and on the surface what seems to be corruption of the legal process. And we've asked this question before. The defendant is a nobody on the political scene. We don't know who he is or or what he is, but for someone who was 23 years old at the time and he's now 27, he's certainly been afforded the sort of support that not many people in the community have actually received in the past, certainly not Brittany Higgins. And, of course, everyone has got the right to presumption of innocence, and we have to say this, otherwise this litigious guy will sue us as well. I'll just read this out, David, but he has always maintained his innocence and no finding has been made against him. There you go, it's all very clear. But the ACT public prosecutor believes that 11 of the 12 jurors were prepared to convict. And hello to the defendant, if you are listening, that's not us saying that, that's what the public prosecutor said. So that's pretty close. But in our legal system, all jurors have to agree on these sort of cases, not 10 or 9 or 11. It's got to be all 12. So the defendant is innocent, but all of this smells of a cover-up. Now, whether it's the defendant who's being protected or for some unknown reason or someone else at the Australian Federal Police or a Liberal Party minister or ministers unnamed. And we're just not being told the full story here. And when you've got the Liberal Party and the Australian Federal Police involved, something nefarious is always bound to happen. And and I just think that that trust in the Australian Federal Police is probably at an all-time low. And and there's a wide range of other issues that need to be addressed here as well. The Federal Police haven't always covered themselves in glory. I've said this before. They were formed because the Victorian police refused to arrest a man who threw an egg at William Morris Hughes, Prime Minister at the time. So he formed the Australian Federal Police so that the Office of Prime Minister would have some kind of protection. It was legislated so that it was a properly constituted law enforcement body. So it was about protecting the office, not the person in the role necessarily, and the federal laws of Australia. Having said that, Tony Abbott lived on Federal Police property for a while when he his first Prime Minister, oh, while well, the lodge was being renovated. There's been some very, on the face of it, improper dealings between the Federal Police and the big four consulting firms who've stripped 
billions of dollars from the Australian taxpayer. Again, they either should be totally dismantled or completely restructured. The culture of it is toxic. And the fact that a woman who had the most unspeakable things done to her, and we don't know by who legally or really evidentially at the moment, but that the person accused is getting far better treatment than she ever got, says something about, one, the AFP, and two, the culture at Parliament House. There's also questions that KC Walter Sofronoff needs to answer as well, as you referred to before, David. Mm. Briefing to journalists during the inquiry is about the most unethical thing that the head of an inquiry can actually do, and why would they do that? And then Sofronoff provided the report under embargo to the News Corporation journalist, Janet Albrickson, and now News Corporation claims that they didn't actually brief the embargo and actually receive the report from someone else, and they're not going to reveal their sources. But... She wrote an entire article about the report from the inquiry. So this is absolute garbage. You can't argue the case that you've received the report under embargo from the commissioner, but then you received it from another source. So you're going to say that you didn't breach that embargo because you already had a copy of it. Now, that argument just doesn't hold any water. And Janet Albrickson and News Corporation, they've got a history of attacking Brittany Higgins and undermining her credibility at every opportunity. And a lot of people have suggested that Sofronoff was just very naive to provide the report to one journalist, and he didn't provide it to all of the general media. It was just this one journalist at News Corporation. And that's not being naive. That's actually quite dangerous. That's exactly what he intended to do. He wanted to undermine Brittany Higgins. He wanted to undermine the ACT public prosecutor, Shane Drumgold, and that's exactly what he's done. My outrage is actually being covered by bafflement at the moment. I await the further developments. As I said, it's like a cheap soap opera that you know you shouldn't be watching and we shouldn't be watching it and none of this should have happened. But it's so outrageous. You've just got to see how it unfolds. Unfortunately, I don't think it will end with justice in the way that we would hope it to end. But if we can get answers and clarity, that would be something Oh, and I guess just looking at the legal community as well, the report from this inquiry seems to be a hit job on the former public prosecutor in the ACT, Shane Drumgold. He he was first appointed as the ACT Director of Public Prosecutions in 2019, and he was the first Indigenous person to hold that post. And I've spoken to a few people in the legal fraternity who suggested that while Drumgold might not have been the best appointment, he was certainly a competent public prosecutor. But some Conservative barristers suggested that he wasn't appointed on merit and he was seen as a bit of a maverick and a legal activist. And this seems to be part of this process of trying to undermine Shane Drumgold, and it's a bit of payback as well. And it's unusual for the legal fraternity to make such serious findings against one of their own, especially a high-profile lawyer. But join all the dots, it's that Indigenous connection again. Pat O'Shane in New South Wales, she was also accused of being too much of an activist magistrate, so the New South Wales legal system harassed her as well. But in this report, it's highly critical of Shane Drumgold, but praises the Australian Federal Police and overlooks or minimises many of the mistakes that they made. So you can make your own assessments of that. But this Sofronoff inquiry was meant to be an inquiry into the trial of Bruce Lerman and the behaviour of the Australian Federal Police in that trial, but it looks like we might need to have an inquiry into the inquiry. And I think longer term, there probably needs to be an investigation into all of the Australian Federal Police and the Canberra Police Force, because it seems like they've become severely compromised and a law unto themselves. 
What is happening, and I don't know if this is just the new government's new broom or whether there's other forces at play as in the public has had enough and things are coming up because it's time for them to come out. But what's happening is things are starting to fall apart for the the usual vested interests. We need desperate and quick reform. A new senior management recruit from overseas, wipe out the senior management of the federal police, transfer them elsewhere, get them out of influence and to start all over again. I don't think a fair and open and transparent parliament or Commonwealth of Australia can survive much longer with this type of secrecy. This is New Politics, one of the top 10 Australian politics and news commentary audio programs. You can listen to us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Amazon Music, and you can find us at newpolitics.com.au, and you can contribute and support New Politics on Substack and Patreon. Just a few more issues in federal politics. There was an outcry about the son of Anthony Albanese, Nathan Albanese, given a Qantas chairman's lounge VIP pass, and that was reported in the Australian Financial Review, and they've received quite a bit of a workout today. And there seemed to be a bit of vindictiveness about the way that this has been reported, and of course there needs to be a separation between politicians and benefits for their families, but we have to compare the way that the media treated the Abbott family when the daughter of Tony Abbott was made a brand ambassador for BMW in 2012, and This was reported as a good news story and isn't it great for the daughter of the opposition leader at the time to be promoted in this way? And they all kept very quiet about this when Tony Abbott did become Prime Minister and awarded a $6.2 million contract to BMW to supply a fleet of high security cars in 2013. And Total coincidence. Of course it's a total coincidence. And we know the way the media behaves in Australia. Every indiscretion by the Liberal Party is overlooked or downplayed. Every act by the Labor Party, whether it's an indiscretion or not, is magnified and amplified in every way possible. Qantas is trying to get favours from the federal government. It was given billions of dollars by the Morrison government at the start of the COVID pandemic in 2020. It's now trying to have some of its travel routes protected from competition from other carriers. And perceptions are everything in politics. We've said this so many times on the New Politics podcast. Nathan Albanese is his own person and he's an adult, but it's probably best to hand this VIP pass back to Qantas and say, thanks for all of the free meals, but no thank you. I think that's right. I mean, it's tough being the child of a prominent person, particularly a prime minister. People assume things of you that may or may not be true. You are living in the shadow of your parents in many ways. If you say something innocent to the press, it can be blown up to all kinds of proportions that nobody meant and be damaging to your parent. There is all of that. Having said that, there's a lot of privilege and that may be just the pay 
or the salary for the privilege you get. I think that it's not a great look for the Prime Minister to be in the Chairman's Lounge. I think it's probably even less of a look for family members to have it. I think you're right, he should quietly hand it back saying, look, thanks, but in a couple of years when I can do it on my own merit, you can ask me then. Otherwise, yeah, I think the normal first-class <laughs> lounge that you pay for is probably enough or, or even fly economy. It's more the perception of it. If there's a scandal with Qantas, it will hamper the Prime Minister's ability to deal with it. may not stop it and you can recuse yourself and all of that, but it's an extra step in something that might be a bit icky to deal with. Might oh, that, well, that's absolutely right. But I was actually doing my best to try and get outraged about this, but it seems that the Qantas Chairman's Lounge is not really such a big deal. It's invitation only, but you do get free meals and pretty good quality meals as well and free drinks at Australian airports in that particular Qantas lounge and there's areas where you can hold meetings as well and you get these benefits if you are travelling or in the case of Nathan Albanese who lives in the inner west deciding to go to Sydney airport to get a free meal why would you do that I don't know but you can do that if you wanted to or use a room for a business meeting. Now if I was going to get into a bit of corruption or go through the whole process of making specific deals for Qantas that are worth millions of dollars, well, I'd, I'd want a lot more than just a few fancy free meals at an airport for my son. I'd want a few brown paper bags filled with cash or a year's <laughs> supply of cocaine or something worth my while. But appearances are important, as you mentioned, David, and it would be better if Nathan Albanese didn't have this special Qantas VIP pass. But the financial review is trying to make it sound like it's the thin edge of the wedge of corruption. And of course, it all starts from somewhere, this type of corruption. And they were very quiet when Francis Abbott was made a brand ambassador to BMW. They were very quiet when Yolanda Ench in far north Queensland, who was married to Warren Ench, received a government grant of $214,000 while her husband was in office. So... Sure, maybe Nathan Albanese should hand back the Qantas VIP pass, but if the media wants to focus on all of these issues, it should report on family members from all political parties, not just the family member Mm. of a Labor politician and a Labor Prime Minister. It's that simple, really. You've got to be consistent. Tony Abbott's other daughter got some kind of hitherto unknown scholarship at the art college she was at, which didn't look very good because other students said, well, we'd have applied for it if we'd known it existed. And suddenly this girl comes in. So again, it's not about the kids themselves. I mean, I wonder how many of us would take it if offered. So I I think it's the type of thing that will quietly go away. And on that point of he could go to the airport anytime and have a meal, it's cheaper to go to a high-end city restaurant, I think, because of the parking or the train fare will actually wipe you out. So nothing comes for free. Annabelle is back. Oh, hello. With an appetite for politics. The best way to get to know someone is in their own kitchen. Three, six, nine. I need to count them, love. Why would you count them? I had to fight for things simply because I was a woman. I got expelled from the Liberal Party. Turning up the heat. There is now a thirst for the truth. For some spicy conversation. Isn't that a bit of a bummer that sports and rorts rhyme? I know, right? Yeah. I've got one sister who lives in the electric. Do they vote for you, though? I should check. (laughs) 
treat it like the netball court, you know, white line. It hasn't actually screened on television yet, but there's many people who are already complaining about Kitchen Cabinet, and that's a series on the ABC where the host is invited to the home of a prominent politician. She brings the dessert and they cook up a meal and talk about the politics of the day. And this seems to combine food porn with political porn, but the criticism surround this idea of trying to humanise politicians when they actually have ample time in politics to humanise themselves through their political actions rather than having to resort to what is essentially public relations and propaganda. And the Biggest criticisms in the past have been for Scott Morrison, where he appeared in one episode in 2015 and proceeded to prepare a Sri Lankan fish curry just a few months after he sent back Sri Lankan asylum seekers back to Sri Lanka, and we don't know if any of them survived, and also for making this comment. The thing none of us like about politics is, I think, all the... You know, many of the things you've raised today are about, oh, what does such and such think about this? And, and I've just learned not to care. Um, and I really don't that much. <laughs> that is a good and simple answer. <laughs> Myself, I'm in it for the food. So <laughs> thank you very much. This has been um, a tremendous and surprising spread. I've made some dessert. Yeah. Shall I um, unleash it? Yeah. <laughs> okay, thank you. Marvellous spread, Minister. Thank you. This is the worst kind of political reporting, and that episode with Scott Morrison was almost like a 30-minute flirt session, but it doesn't matter who it is, whether it's Peter Dutton, Annika Wells, Linda Burney, Bridget McKenzie or Lydia Thorpe, and they're all appearing in the next season of Kitchen Cabinet, we should judge politicians on their actions, not what they cook up in the kitchen. I found it vapid. I found it vacuous. I found it deeply unintelligent. It was a show that struggled to have a point to exist. Politicians, and I hate the puff pieces and they all do them. Nine times out of 10, the puff pieces end up looking bad because the politician turns out to be awful. But we should be talking to them about what are you doing? What are your policies? We can be hard. We can be hard questions from all sides, probing questions. There's two things, really. It's a real show of how inadequate our mainstream media is, that they think that this is a a worthwhile way to speak to people. And two, it's a sign of how bereft of ideas that the ABC is. ABC, of course, don't care of ratings, but except for the show where Kevin Rudd was on, the show rated appallingly. And there are plenty of other ideas that they could have resurrected from the past that would have been better Sean McAuliffe said, why not bring back Jack High, the bowling show? And at least there's a bit of conflict and entertainment there (laughs) and would help the sport of lawn bowling, which is uh, seemingly in decline. I don't understand. I don't know any serious political watcher who will watch it. And when Scott Morrison said, I don't care that much or whatever the quote was, it was not treated as a look at this. Is this the correct attitude for the Prime Minister to have on human lives on the show or in the promotion after? It's like, oh, look at ScoMo, good old ScoMo. He doesn't care, does he? Why would you? And it was a show that missed the impact of the few important things that it managed to bring out, either missed it altogether or put the wrong emphasis on it. And it seems that they're considering not renewing that interview show with David Wenham, which had some really important and interesting creative types and intellectuals on and was really well done. It's extraordinary. I don't know what the management's doing. 
Oh, well, I guess it also shows us where the ABC is at the moment. And I was actually surprised that Kitchen Cabinet is actually in its seventh season. It, it seemed like a little bit of a novelty when it first appeared, but for me it seemed out of date by the end of that first season. But I did have a, another look at the episode with Scott Morrison from 2015, and there's a lot of suggestive cutaway shots. There's a bit of a soft blur on the host of the program. It, for me, it just seemed like a Nigella Lawson version of food porn, except the food is not so good and and I just don't know where you go with something like this like historically would you do an interview with General Franco while you're making a paella or Cambodian food with Pol Pot while you're talking about genocide or making a borscht with Leonard Brezhnev while you're asking him why Chechens were removed from Chechnya and sent off to Siberia so just seems like a ridiculous way to present politicians and I think it just makes light of some actions that some politicians have made that have got some serious consequences. Scott Morrison and his boat turnbacks of Sri Lankan refugees, Peter Dutton and his long list of racism, his current opposition to the voice to parliament and as I said if we are going to try and humanise political leaders well let's judge them by their actions in political life not whether they can cook a curry or not. Yeah, we shouldn't have to humanise them. They should be human. And then we can look at their ideas. The the other show that, you know, enhanced Russian tea with Vladimir Putin. If it goes well, you get the antidote. Well, that's one program that I definitely watch. I, I wonder if it'll be quietly dropped from the schedule, but we'll see. We won't see the show. I saw one or two episodes of the show when it was first on, and that was enough. I won't bother with this one. That's it for this episode of New Politics. Thanks for listening in. And if you'd like to support our style of journalism and commentary, please make a donation at our website at newpolitics.com.au. We don't beg, plead, beseech or gaslight you about journalism coming to an end. We just keep it very simple. If you like what we do, please send some support our way. It keeps our commitment to independent journalism ticking along. I'm Eddie Djokovic. Thanks for listening in and it's goodbye to our listeners. I'm David Lewis. We'll see you next time.